Hello, and welcome to Linguistics Now, a podcast where we discuss everything linguistics with linguists from all over the world. I'm your host, Vicky Loras, and I am delighted to welcome you to another episode. Welcome to today's episode, the very first episode of Linguistics Now where we discuss everything concerning linguistics. Today's first guest is a huge honor to have, and it is really hard not to know him if you are in linguistics. My guest today is Professor David Britton, Professor of Modern English Linguistics at the University of Bern here in Switzerland. His CV is very extensive and his background broad. He has studied English, French, and German at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, England. He is a sociolinguist and dialectologist. In 1991, he began a two-year postdoctoral fellowship in the Department of Linguistics, now School of Linguistics and Applied Language Studies, of Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. There, he was part of a research team along with Janet Holmes, Alan Bell and Mary Boyce, undertaking the first large-scale social dialect analysis of New Zealand English. He has done many projects since then, and since January 2010, he has held the chair of Modern English Linguistics here at the University of Bern. He's also on the editorial boards of Journal of Sociolinguistics, English Language and Linguistics, English Worldwide, and the Journal of Linguistic Geography. He has co-edited a special issue of the International Journal of the Sociology of Language on Dialect Death in Europe with Reinhild van der Kerkhoff and Willy Jungenberger, published in 2009. He has been an invited speaker in many countries around the world, and I'm going to include his website, work, and Twitter handle in the show notes. Dear Dave, thank you for the first name basis and for accepting my invitation. Thank you, Vicky. It's wonderful to have you. So you have a very broad uh, background and I have a lot of things to ask you and to learn from you. First of all, how did sociolinguistics and dialectology initially interest you? How did you get into those two fields? Um, I guess I first really um heard about social linguistics and dialectology when I was doing my BA at the University of East Anglia that you mentioned in the introduction. Um, and we had a course there um, taught by um, Professor Ken Lodge on the history of English dialects. Um, and it was essentially a historical phonology course, but using dialect data as the evidence rather than data from standard English. Um, and in that project, we had to go and um, record somebody and think about what was going on in the dialect and, uh, and so on. And so I recorded my dad. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I guess that was the first time that, that I had actually really studied dialect mm -hmm. and recorded dialect and, and um, sort of thought about um, in, in very kind of explicit and analytical terms about dialect. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it was as a result of that project that I then, you know, ultimately went on to do my PhD on the dialect of my dad's um, home region. 
Um, but looking back on it, I can remember now at school um, mm -hmm. that dialect was was often quite a, uh, something that we talked about quite a bit because a lot of the kids, including me, mm -hmm. came to came to the school that I went to from a different dialect area, um, and I remember that that was that was often talked about within the school that we spoke this little group of people that came from this little cluster of villages mm -hmm. spoke differently from most of the kids in the school um so thinking back i you know i, I know that dialect was a, a kind of um an issue that was being talked about um you know uh, a dialect difference being talked about you know quite a lot when i was a youngster so i guess that was that, that, the the opportunity to study it when i was at um, university of east anglia mm -hmm. was kind of building on on these earlier um observations i guess that we've made at school oh fantastic that's fascinating and which dialect were you studying which is the dialect of your father so this is the dialect of Wisbeach, which is the, the main town in the fenland area um oh, that okay. i studied for my phd yeah mm -hmm. um and i mean the, the where i was living when i was at school was a small group of villages in the very far west of the county of norfolk mm -hmm. and those villages have a dialect like Wisbeach, the, ta the, the town mm -hmm. but i went to school 20 kilometers in the other direction where they they had more, more typically norfolk dialects um and these four or five villages didn't have that dialect and so they, i mean they're quite distinct actually um so that was often a talking point wow that's very interesting um apart from that dialect then you moved on to australian english new zealand the falklands and micronesia uh, how did these varieties spark your interest, first of all, and what impressive facts can you share about them? I mean, I know it's a large study <laughs> area. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was very fortunate indeed to be able to spend two years as a postdoc um, in Wellington. Um, <laughs> I mean, they were probably two of my the happiest years of my life, I have to say. Um, and I was very fortunate there to be able to work with um, Janet Holmes and Alan Bell and Laurie Bauer. I met Miriam Mayerhoff there. So um, it was a wonderful, um, a wonderful time I spent there. Um, and we were working on a the first real systematic um, social dialect corpus of New Zealand English. Um, mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate to be able to work on that and um, do some analysis of that corpus um and that of course you know you can't really spend two years in new zealand without getting a sense not just of new zealand in the context of the wider pacific but mm -hmm. also you know um how did new zealand english come to be as it is and so i became um uh even more interested than i already had been in dialect contact and how new dialects new colonial dialects form um <laughs> so for me the the study of new zealand english kind of um uh enabled me both to think about contemporary dialect data and how to study that but also thinking about okay how do we how did we get to this point where new zealand english is the way it is how mm -hmm. did we get from lots of migrant brits and irish people in the 19th century going to new zealand and creating this new this new dialect there um a dialect that although it largely comes from um originally british isles dialects doesn't sound like any of them today um so that's always fascinated me since since then is that, you know how did we get to how, how did these 
um, these varieties of English spoken in Australia and New Zealand come to be the way they are. Um, and I guess that then um, led me to um, think then about places like the Falkland Islands mm -hmm. um, that are interesting because there was no indigenous population when the British first settled there in 
Um, wow. I then had an MA student who wanted to go to Nauru. So she wrote her MA dissertation on the English of Nauru. And then another PhD student who was interested in Guam. <laughs> and so off she went to Guam and, and wrote her PhD separate to the main SNF project um, on the English of Guam. So we, we kind of suddenly had all this interest in Micronesia and was able to collect a, um, a very large corpus of Micronesian English from across the different um, territories and nations of Micronesia. Um, Isabella Buchdala has subsequently also studied the English of the Marshall Islands. So um, from having none of the islands of Micronesia studied, now all of them have been studied um, to some extent, at least one place in each of the um, seven constituent territories has now been um, has now been studied in the last in the last decade, and that was fascinating as well because yeah. it enabled me to find out about the, the history of English in Micronesia when people first started speaking English in the nineteenth century. Um, who was there speaking English? How did the locals pick up English? Um, the effect of the particularly the German and the Japanese colonial periods mm -hmm. in Micronesia on the English. And then the re-emergence of the English-speaking community in 1945 um, uh, after the Pacific War. So that's been amazing as well. And I, you know, traveling to Palau was was an extraordinary experience that I'll never forget. Um, mm -hmm. And I continue to work with with Kazuko on that um, on that Palauan data, both the English and the Japanese data um, that she's been collecting. So that's been an amazing. Um, uh, experience too um and and i guess partly because because of the micronesia project and so on and um i guess people have just been getting interested in islands and so i've had yeah. um other students who've looked at um other islands since um so danielle todd has looked at mm -hmm. the english of tonga um hannah hedegaard looked at the english of the cocos keeling islands in the indian ocean um and I think what's been fascinating is that all of these different islands have got, um, you know, unique and distinctive histories. Um, yeah. And looking then at the Englishes that emerge in them and looking at, at the fact that, in, you know, in each place you've got some things which are very distinctive and some mm -hmm. things which are happening um, in many other world Englishes. Um, I think it teaches us a lot about um, what happens in these, in these kind of uh, insular um, some sometimes rather remote um, uh, islands where English, for some reason, has come to be spoken over the last couple of hundred years. Um, wow. So yes, yeah, so my, I think my, all this stems partly from my original experience in New Zealand, mm -hmm. getting getting interested in post-colonial post-colonial issues around language, new dialect formation, and also then in lesser-known varieties of English and and the Englishes of the Pacific. Beautiful. I'm so excited to hear about all this. It's so wonderful to see the interaction between you and your students and the ideas they have and that you encourage them to go there and to carry out the research and that you build corpuses and that they're ongoing projects. I think if I understand well, the Palauan one is ongoing and the Falkland mm. Islands too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we, I mean, we, I, I was talking with Hannah um, just earlier this uh, this week about you know the next stages in the Falklands project and which features we're going to look at next. Um, we've already been able to give quite a few conference presentations on some of the early results and we'll um, we have a book contract for the Falkland Island um, analysis. Wow. Um, so hopefully that will be out in a couple of years time. Yeah. Oh congratulations that's wonderful.
Oh, great. Okay. When it's, um, when it comes out, I'm going to add it to our podcast episode that people uh, can know where to get it and what it's called. Oh, sure. fantastic. Yeah. And speaking of migration, you mentioned the Germans and uh, the Japanese. Uh, a large part of your research is about mobility and language on the move. Can you tell us more about this part? Yeah, so... I mean, I've. I mean, the, my my research, original PhD research on the dialect of the Fens, um, uh, led me to have to investigate necessarily the, the kind of population history of the Fens, um, and the Fens were an area which used to be marshland, largely, you know, uninhabitable marshland, and there were small islands um, in the marsh where people could live, um, <laughs> and then they were drained by the Dutch in the 17th century. And, and people then moved on from either side. Um, so one of the arguments in my PhD is that the contemporary dialect of this area is, is basically a mixed dialect as a result of the migration of speakers from either side of the earlier marshland onto the marshland to settle and farm it. And we can see from the contemporary structure of that dialect that it is, it is indeed a mixture of the dialects of either side um, yeah. that resulted um, from the mixture of dialects at that time in the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm -hmm. um, so mobility has always been on my agenda because I couldn't ignore it in, in trying to explain what was going on um, in, uh, in the Fenland dialect data. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I guess, when did I get back into mobility uh, in, interests? I guess it must have been 15 years ago, I guess, that I got back into um, uh thinking about mobility mm -hmm. um i'd always been interested in geography um uh, and and demography particularly and, and the the impact of population movements on on the world in general and mm -hmm. so thinking about it in terms of language just seemed to be a kind of an uh, an obvious thing to do to me i guess um yeah and, and i was kind of curious that whilst there was a lot of sociology coming to be used within within social linguistics there didn't seem to be very much engagement with human geography mm -hmm. um and for me you know it's the human geographers who know about mobility um yeah. and i think one of the real inspirations was um tim cresswell's book on the move oh, yeah. um, he talked about the the kind of um uh he, i mean he partly talked about how right across the social sciences mobility has somehow been ignored or sidelined or brushed under the carpet um and seen as problematic um mm -hmm. in some way and that um there's been a lot of concentration for a very long time uh, right across the social sciences on the static and the place-based mm -hmm. um and his book was basically saying we have to we have to you know get away from this we shouldn't see things every everything in, in terms of of place-basedness but also recognize the um, the, the importance and the important meaning of mobility in, um, in people's mm -hmm. lives, just how mobile people are. Um, and so it, it made me then begin to think about the, not just uh, the linguistic impact of large scale mobility of people moving across the other side of the world, like they had when they settled New Zealand, um, mm -hmm. when Anglophones settled New Zealand um, in the 19th century, um, but also much more mundane mobilities, everyday mobilities, commuting, yeah. um, you know, and just moving 10 miles down the road or, um, you know, then the kinds of impacts that can have on, you know, your social network ties to your community and consequently your 
um, maintenance of your local dialect. And so mm-hmm. um, I started then to apply some of the idea and abilities which was in the geography literature to some of the things that we knew about dialect to try and urge people to think much more about mobile people um, mm-hmm. and, and and use that use that sort of theoretical geographical literature to come and to try and explain some of the um, linguistic findings we were making um, mm-hmm. uh, you know as we were studying different communities um, so, so the mobility stuff I th- still think is really interesting. I'm getting more excited now about um, mobile methods um, okay. and how we can study people who are actually physically on the move at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing that struck me um, is that when we collect social linguistic interviews, you know, the normal bread and butter data of our dialectological discipline, um, yeah. we always put people in a living room with soft mm-hmm. furnishings around them. We sit yeah. them still, we turn off the radio, we move the parrot. Um, we yeah. have these perfect soft, soft, soft furnishing um, I- environment. We sit face to face and we have a, a conversation with somebody. And that's lovely and comfortable and mm-hmm. probably good for the for optimal recording conditions. Mm-hmm. But actually, we don't do that really very often in our everyday lives, right? We're on the right. move. We're moving around the kitchen, getting lunch ready. We're moving around the flat as we're, you know, putting washing in the washing machine. And, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're constantly on the move. And yet we never record people when they're on the move. Um, so I've been thinking about how we might do that and why we might do that um, and thinking about um, recording people while driving the car. Um, oh, cool. while traveling on the bus, while going for a hike, to see whether the the different modality, um, yeah. the, the lack of face-to-faceness actually has an impact on, you know, our the realizations of our dialect potentially, um, whether there are phonetic things that we do when we're in a noisy environment or when we're not in face-to-face contact with somebody yeah. when we're talking to them, um, that we might do Let's say if, if I'm driving a car and I'm talking to people in the back, how do I signal turn endings when, when I don't have face-to-face eye contact with them? Oh, um, true. I, I might be more, I might be louder. I might release my final consonants more strongly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got, I've got you know, various ideas about what might happen, but I've got to go out and do some empirical research on this. Now, so I'm getting quite excited about sort of mobile data collection as well. Um, and, and whether, you know, whether actually very subtly we might speak differently um, phonetically um, when we're um, driving a car or going for a walk with somebody rather than sitting, looking at them face to face. I mean, right now, you know, we're, 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 um, we're on Zoom and you can see me, you can see my face, you can see my facial expressions, you can see my hands moving, you can see my bodily body movement, you can see whether I'm smiling or I'm not smiling, you can see whether I'm paying attention or not, and I can see whether you're paying attention or not. <laughs> If yeah. I'm driving a car, if I'm driving a car, I have no idea what the people in the back are doing, right? Well, yeah. I don't know whether they're attention or not. Um, and so I will have to produce language that 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 responds to the lack of these other cues that we would normally have in face-to-face environments. And so I think there must be some mm-hmm. phonetic possibly manifestation, as well as a discursive one, but a phonetic manifestation of that recognition that we're, we've lost so much in not being face to face that it has yeah. to be compensated for potentially phonetically in some other way. So this mm-hmm. is what I'm getting excited about at the moment with, with the oh, mobility research, actual mobile data collection as well. 
That's so interesting because now I'm imagining, now you can see my face and how excited I am to listen <laughs> to you. But I imagine if I were in the back of a car that you were driving and you were telling me all these things that you're telling me now, I would probably interject much more like, wow, yeah, oh my God, I would slap my knee or something <laughs> like that. Exactly. You know, and, 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 and it, you know, I think we probably have, um, we probably have pretty good intuitions about what we do in, the, in these yeah. moments, but we don't have, as far as I'm aware, we don't have very much empirical research on, um, on the, 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 the kind of language variation and change implications of that. Yeah. Um, now, one group of people who have done research on this are the conversation analysts, and we need to give them credit for actually engaging in mobilities research themselves. So there's work on um, uh, interaction uh, during guided tours, for example. Um, mm -hmm. There's some work on um, uh, conversations between couples as they wander around a supermarket. Yeah. Um, and also even in a car where th there's some research um, by Eric Laurier looking at, mm -hmm. at how people um, discursively construct approaching a roundabout um, in, in traffic and, oh, how, and cool. how, it, how the dealing with the, with the, with the traffic is, is uh, managed by both driver and passenger. Mm -hmm. um, so the conversation analysts have begun to do this. Um, but the dialectologists and the language variation folk have not, as far as I can tell, um, yeah. really thought about, you know, what are the, what are the consequences of, of um, being mobile while you're talking, which almost certainly is not face-to-face -face, or is in um, less than optimal surroundings. So sitting on a train, for example, you might be face-to-face, -face, but it'll be noisy, right? Yeah. Um, and there'll be overhearers. So what's what's the consequence of that? Um, yeah. On the one hand, you might think, "Oh, speak more loudly," mm -hmm. but then everybody else in the train carriage will hear your conversation, right? So I think there's there's some interesting things we can explore by looking at um, looking at uh, mobility from mm -hmm. a from a social linguistic and dialectological perspective. Mm -hmm. um one thing that has grasped my attention um, from your work is that you talk more about language obsolescence than rather than language death. Um, how is there a distinct is there a distinction between the two? I, I find obsolescence much more positive because I think the language I could be a romantic, but I think that the languages live on from books or from other ways that it can be recorded i don't know how do you mean that and why do you prefer if you prefer that's what i have gathered the term obsolescence rather than death um i guess um i mean death is pretty terminal in a way yeah. right? i mean you're either dead or you're not yeah um and and i think um Obsolescence, I think that what I like about obsolescence is that um, it's a process yeah. rather than an either or. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what's interesting linguistically from both language and dialect obsolescence contexts is that yeah. it is, you know, by what process do dialects um, ultimately die? By mm -hmm. what process do languages die? What, what kind of structural things happen? To those languages and dialects as they undergo as they shift towards a, a point where nobody speaks them anymore yeah um, and so for me perhaps obsolescence captures that sense of process mm -hmm. 
rather than the finality. Um, and I think the, the um, obs something that's that's gone to the end stage of obsolescence is obsolete, right? Yeah. And obsolete things are still there; they're just not used anymore. Yeah. Right? And I think that that then um, recognizes that these things can sometimes be reinvigorated mm -hmm. potentially um and you know so we know of languages that have well died right mm -hmm. and then been brought back to life so in a sense obsolescence is perhaps somewhat less um fatal yeah. um, than death death suggests that that's it right whereas obsolescence yeah, suggests over. in fact that you know things might lay dormant for a while until people decide to pick them up again so there's, a, there's a, I mean, like you say, it is a bit more positive than, yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, but I think mostly I, I, I prefer the, the, um, the form obsolescence simply because it, it, it gives this sense of process um, yeah. of, of, of looking at different stages as the, as the variety undergoes, uh, undergoes that process towards lack of use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I really could listen to you for hours. Um, so I think my my final question for today would be, um, you you really inspire a lot of us in the field, and I really mean this. Who inspires you? Who has inspired you from the beginning of your career as an academic, and who keeps doing it now throughout your career? If you can mention a few. Wow, that's a, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think I, I mean I think one. I think one of the thing, one of the things that I've always enjoyed doing right from the very start of my career as an academic is working with students. Yeah. I love supervising PhD students. It's, I mean, it really truly is the, the favorite part of my job. Um, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I enjoy bringing them on, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and seeing them develop and giving them ideas and brainstorming with them about what they're doing. Um, you know, frankly, just as much as I do getting on with my own research. That is wonderful and, to hear. And, well, I mean, it's, it sounds a little bit twee, but it, but I really do, um, I really do love that that sort of um, that sense of fertility that you get with ideas when you when you are talking um, with more than one person, because mm -hmm. um, it can be a pretty lonely existence if you're doing everything on your own. And I think True. that 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 um when you get a group of people together just engaging about something brainstorming about something that's that's my five my one of my favorite things i do with my with my students so they have been inspirational throughout my career and mm -hmm. they continue to be i mean i have some fantastic students at the moment that's um, i think also i've been inspired by people outside the discipline as well you know i okay. mentioned tim cresswell earlier yeah. the, you know the mobilities mm -hmm. um scholar um, and, and I, so I think sometimes it's, I, I'm often inspired by things that are like well out of, well out of my normal zone. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, I like sort of picking, picking things up from outside my, my usual, um, domain and getting excited about them and the, and the kinds of things that they might bring to. The kinds of questions that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you know, the the the, the human geographers, I have to say, have been particularly um, uh, inspiring about mm -hmm. that. Um, 
so I've, I've been enjoying lots of um, human geographical work, for example, on um, placemaking and, um, uh, and, and how uh, place is constructed through media representations. Mm -hmm. So, that, so it, it, it's, I mean, rather than the work in linguistics, which does this, I've been yeah. particularly inspired by work in human geography on, um, on the role of, um, of the media in portraying representations of ruralness, for example. Oh, beautiful. And, and, and thinking about how, how um, what we think of as rural has mm -hmm. actually strongly shaped um, the way that we represent rural dialects, for example. Um, and how the media has been largely responsible for presenting a particular idea of what the rural is and an idea of what the rural should sound like. Um, and so that's so, the, so a lot of geographical work on rurality and urbanness has been really influential, I think, in, you know, in bringing an idea from outside and thinking, well, I can do something with that. I think that, that mm -hmm. always um, gets me, um, gets me excited as well. I think also, um, I continue to be inspired by some of the, uh, you know, the founding figure discipline. Um, <laughs> I think some of them uh, can, you know, continue to produce extraordinary work. Um, yeah. Uh, um, I mean, I, I, the, I guess the two who, who I found particularly inspirational in the last um, uh, 10 years or so are people like Susan Gow, mm -hmm. uh, whose work on language ideologies continues to just be um, uh, fizzing with ideas and and, and excitement, um, and also people like Walt Wolfram, you know, who yeah. who just continue to to produce um, grounded, robust empirical work that has a, a purpose and a goal and and a, and a social ethic um, that you know, wants to do good for the communities that, that he studied. I think he's a, he's a, a such an inspirational figure um, in, in showing us what we can do to, you know, to, 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 to pay back the communities that we, that we, that we go in and collect data from. Yeah. Um, so important. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, 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 um, I'm always ready to kind of pick something up off the shelf and 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 give it a go and um and that has tended to be from the human geographical literature I have to admit in the last twenty years or so. Mm -hmm. Oh, fantastic! It has been such a pleasure today having you as a guest. I could honestly listen to you for hours. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I can have you again in the future. Maybe who knows? Absolutely, why not? Yeah, that's oh, been great. fun. Thank you so much for this episode today. It was great listening to you and everything you shared with us and you taught us. <laughs> Thank you very much, Vicky. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Linguistics Now, which is available on all podcasting platforms. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can receive notifications every time a new episode is available. For any comments, or if you would like to be one of my guests, please email me at Vicky Loras, that's V-I-C-K-Y-L-O-R-A-S, at Yahoo dot ca